0: My guest today is Michael Pollan. Michael's the author of seven previous books, which include Cooked, Food Rules, In Defense of Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and The Botany of Desire, all of which were New York Times bestsellers. And he's a longtime contributor to the New York Times Magazine. He also teaches writing at Harvard and the University of California, Berkeley. And in 2010, Time Magazine named him to its list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Today we're speaking about his new book, which is titled, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And as I say in the outset of this conversation, many of us have been waiting for somebody to write this book, and it was really perfect that Michael was that person. Anyway, I could have spoken to Michael for many hours about this, but uh, he was in the middle of a punishing book tour. So I got about an hour and twenty minutes or so of his time. And I hope you think we put it to good use. And now I bring you Michael Pollan. I am here with Michael Pollan. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, great to be here, Sam.
0: I am so grateful that you wrote this book. I think this must be a sentiment that has been expressed to you many times. This book you have written, How to Change Your Mind, which is your deep exploration into both the current science and clinical use of and your own personal experience with psychedelics, it really couldn't be more timely. And I just got the sense while waiting for the book in the aftermath of your New Yorker article, which came out a few years ago, and in reading it, that this was just perfect. You were just the person to do this, and you really delivered on. A lot of promise that was laid out in your article. First, just thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, thanks for those generous words. You know, I do feel, I mean, the book's only been out for a few days, but I do feel like this was a conversation that the culture was waiting to have. And uh, I'm just really surprised. First, how many people have come forward to tell me about their own experiences, which are often profound and, and maybe have not been taken out of that box labeled weird drug experience for 30, 40 years. Um, but also the fact that it, it seems like we're ready to have a kind of more matter of fact discussion of these things and, and look at them as tools, what they're good for, what they're not good for, uh, rather than you know the, the, the usual kind of um, instantaneous reaction, you know, evo- evoking invoking all the the problems of the sixties. Um, so uh, so
0: I, I've been hopeful by you know and encouraged by the response. Yeah, and you were. Especially well placed in my view to write this because I mean, not only your your background as a writer and journalist, but because the 60s had sort of passed you by, you were born right in this valley where you were sort of young enough to kind of miss the summer of love. So you were not this old acid head who's now dusting off his <laughs> interest in altered states of consciousness. You were exploring this for the first time. Yeah. I guess the first question is. What was that like? You're 60 now or you're 61?
1: I'm 63 now. I was in my late 50s when
0: I started working on this. So that is precisely the time where people's risk aversion seems to be kicking into high gear. And, you know, as someone who has done a fair amount of psychedelics in his youth, but has since done none for precisely the reasons that might have given you some trepidation to do this in the first place. What was that like? How long did you have to negotiate with yourself and with your wife and your agent? What was the process before you jumped? Uh (laughs) Well, I
1: definitely didn't tell my agent about it. Um, (laughs) Not at the beginning. Um, You know, I was a very reluctant uh, psychonaut. Uh, I hadn't really had experience of these drugs, except for a couple very mild, so-called aesthetic experiences with psilocybin in my late 20s. Um, I came of age at a moment where the moral panic was in full flower, and I heard all the horror stories. And honestly, I didn't feel like I was a psychologically sturdy enough person to do this, and um, so I, so I stayed away. Um, then to approach it later, I mean, it's true when you're when you're twenty, you know, when you were having your experiments in uh, in Nepal, um, you you believe you're immortal. Uh, and you are, you know, I mean, men that age are great risk takers. That's why we send them to war. And, um, but here I was approaching 60 and, you know, was not unhappy and had a pretty good life and why mess with it? Uh, and on the other hand, um, uh, so I had to overcome a lot of reluctance, uh, of so many things. I mean, the fear of the drugs and the experience, The uh, the new age kind of woo woo uh, vocabulary of my guides, um, the music (laughs) that they played. Mm -hmm. So many things just rubbed me the wrong
0: way. You're unusually hung up on the music. That was I
1: know. I don't know why it's kind of
0: adorable that that was such a sticking point.
1: (laughs) It really got to me. It was the kind of music you might hear at a high end spa while you're getting a massage. for, For some reason, this is profound to some people. Uh, So, and my, you know, I argued with myself before every one of my trips, I had an awful sleepless night where part of me was arguing, are you crazy? You know, you're going to go up to the top of this mountain. You're going to be with someone you barely know. You could have a heart attack and he's not going to call 911 because it's going to get him into trouble. And, um, and then the other half would be saying, but aren't you curious? You know, you've never had a, a spiritual experience. Aren't you, um. Uh, you know, plus you got a book to write. And um, so it was, uh, you know, this ping pong match every night. And I realized eventually that that was my ego trying to stop me from what was going to be a full assault on it. Um, So I uh, fortunately, I overcame that reluctance. I I mean, I'm very glad I did. But
0: I could see how
1: easily you would not do this.
0: Now, you hadn't taken any trip yourself when you wrote the New Yorker article. Is that right? That's
1: right. I hadn't done it then. And that article was kind of straight ahead science writing. I I think the New Yorker would have been frightened off had I said, hey, and and I'm going to have a trip too. I had to stick to the people in white coats, you know, That's, that's to get it into the New Yorker. It was hard enough to get a piece on psychedelics into the New Yorker in 2014. That's interesting. That actually took
0: some negotiation with your editors.
1: Well, I mean, think about it. There uh, was—I mean, I did—I proposed it to them, and they bit. But then I handed in fourteen thousand words on science that had not yet been peer-reviewed. So I could see why it was a bit of a stretch. And there was this very interesting moment two or three days before close, where uh, I got word from my editor that I had to find a prominent uh, psychiatrist or somebody who thought this was all bullshit. And uh, so I spent a day dialing, you know, dialing around until I found, I thought Tom Insel, the uh, former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, would give me the establishment cautions. But when I reached him in Davos, he was like, he was on acid. No, this, this research is really interesting. I think, we, I think we need to do it. And um, I finally got uh, uh, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse to give me the, the quote I needed, which was, these drugs can be abused,
0: which we know. I don't disagree with that. That's the squarest quote you could find? Yeah, that was the best Uh, I could do. That's funny. Well, so I think we should probably uh, give our own disclaimer here. It's certainly clear if listeners have read anything I've written about psychedelics, and it would be clear to anyone reading your book, that there's potential downside. First, we have to acknowledge that the word drugs names a, a very wide spectrum of compounds that are Significantly different both psychologically and physically. So you know, much of what we're going to say about the classic psychedelics doesn't necessarily apply to something like MDMA, which has also therapeutic value and people have derived a lot of benefit from it. But unlike the classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin being the most common here, but you, you would add DMT as well, mm-hmm. you can make the case that MDMA is physically not good for you. It's very hard to make that case with LSD and psilocybin. They seem to be impressively non-toxic, but they produce such a strong experience psychologically for good or for ill that you can't recommend this without serious caveat to people. And and people who can't afford, as I think I said when I wrote about this, to give the anchor of sanity even the slightest tug, tug. uh, really, really shouldn't. And so it's, you know, if someone's at risk for schizophrenia or worries that they could be destabilized in some permanent way by experiences like this, this isn't just a matter of what one would want to say about psychedelics. This applies to even long-term meditation practice. I wouldn't recommend that someone go into silence for a month and do nothing but meditate if they're at risk for a condition like schizophrenia. So we're about to say some very positive things, and we should just yeah to anchor that particular Yeah I, I'd disclaimer. like to say
1: an additional word about risk. I think you I think it's very important to preface any conversation with a sense of risk. The risks are as you suggest less physiological than they are um, psychological. Physiologically the drugs as you say are are re- relatively non-toxic. I mean there are lethal doses of all sorts of over-the-counter drugs that you have in your medicine cabinet and there doesn't appear to be lethal doses of the classic uh, psychedelics. And I agree with you that I would take MDMA out of that, that it is more toxic. I, I would also add to that, though, that they don't appear to be uh, addictive. And that, you know, in animal experiments, you know, in the classic setup where the uh, the rat has a lever that administers cocaine to itself and another lever for for food, it will press the lever Endlessly for cocaine until it dies, whereas in the case, if you if you do that setup with lSD it'll press it once and never again no the the, the first reaction after a big psychedelic trip is not "Where can I get some more uh, It's just too powerful an experience, but psychologically, some people do get into trouble and I, you know I, and i'm I'm hearing those stories when I talk to audiences about this I can't you know it's anecdotal, but there are casualties um and we don't know whether uh, psychedelics have ever created a case of mental illness where there was no predisposition for it. Um, that's, that's really not clear, but certainly people have very powerful reactions. They can be just panic reactions sometimes, but they can also be psychotic episodes. And in some very few cases, psychotic breaks. So in the, in the trials that are going on, people are screened very carefully. And if they have a family history of schizophrenia, um, they're, you know, they're just not, allowed in and, and, and some personality disorders too. I, I think people who have bipolar, they also don't let into their trials. So all of that is very important. But on this other point that, you know, we're going to be talking about this together. I just want to say that your own accounts of psychedelics, uh, especially in waking up were incredibly important to me as I was deciding what to do in, in this book. And that it, they really emboldened me, um, that a person of your reputation and evidence sanity, and, um, uh, and uh, that you would be willing to describe your experiences so openly made it a little easier for me to do that, too. So I'm grateful for that.
0: Oh, nice. Nice. Well, I was glad to see that you didn't take 400 micrograms of acid in the middle of a canoe no. in the <laughs> middle of a lake in the middle of Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not 20. <laughs> it wasn't good, even if you were 20. Uh, but I, yeah, so that's great. I, I'm I'm very happy to hear that. And for those who want to hear more of my cautionary tale with respect to psychedelics, they can read that chapter in Waking Up. It's also a blog post titled "Drugs and the Meaning of Life." But the flip side, of course, is that both of us are convinced that these drugs have immense promise. Both. Therapeutically, for people who are in one or another state of obvious unwellness, but also, as you phrase it many times in the book, the betterment of well people. And that's Mm -hmm. the more controversial side of this, that people who are experiencing ordinary levels of happiness and well-being still stand a lot to gain from these sorts of experiences. I mean, that's certainly been my experience and it's been yours. Again, we'll dive into that, but, you know, the disclaimer still stands and, you know, people need to find whatever experts in their life to consult before they take any implicit advice coming from us here.
1: And also, ideally, I mean, one way to mitigate the risk um, is to is to work with a guide, um, someone who is a professional, uh, someone who really knows the territory. And we'll talk a little later about what how a guided experience differs from a uh so-called recreational experience, but I think it's a profound difference. And it definitely mitigates uh, the risk.
0: I guess let's start with a snapshot of the landscape here. I guess I've distinguished two aspects to it here. There's the renewed clinical interest. Maybe you can describe how that looks now and the conditions for which people are marshaling psilocybin and other drugs. And then we can talk about the notion of the betterment of well people as well.
1: Sure. Well, what's happening right now and has been happening now for really almost two decades is a renaissance of research that was going on in the 1950s that I was not aware of. I think many people, I mean, even I talked to young psychiatrists. They never heard about this in their education. But that in the 50s, there was a really uh, fertile period of experimentation by you know, serious psychiatrists and academics to try to figure out what LSD and then a little later psilocybin might have to contribute to mental health treatment. And the work that's been going on now since the late 90s is really uh, attempt to pick up that thread that was dropped during the the moral panic that led to the backlash against psychedelics in the 60s. And, you know, we had this 30-year hiatus in research, which is, I don't know if I can think of another example of a promising line of inquiry that scientists were very excited about. I mean, many people thought it was a, this was going to be a psychiatric wonder drug that was completely suppressed for a period of time and then resumed. And we can only imagine what we might know had we continued uh, and had that other 30 years of experience and research with these drugs. But anyway, the work that's going on now so far is mostly repeating experiments that were done in the 50s, but doing them to much better standards. The randomized, double-blind, controlled trial is, is really doesn't really come into common use until 1962 or three, um, after the thalidomide scandal or tragedy. And that's when we had an experience with a drug that was being given to pregnant women that led to birth defects. It was a horrible episode. And, that, and it was only then that we started regulating the drug approval process the way we do it now. And so these trials that were done in the 50s by modern standards aren't adequate. They often weren't controlled. And it is hard to control a psychedelic ex- experiment because you usually can tell who's who got the acid and who got the placebo. The, the double blind yeah, thing it becomes unblinded pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. quickly. And um, so the kinds of indications they're using the drugs for now are... The anxiety and depression felt by cancer patients after they get uh, that life, you know, either that terminal or life-threatening diagnosis, that was done in the 60s, also in the 50s, and it is being done now with remarkable success. These studies that I wrote about in that New Yorker piece have been published since in December 2016, and they were done at Johns Hopkins and NYU. So top institutions, and they found um, that in 80% of the uh, volunteers, there were st- statistically significant reductions in standard measures of anxiety and depression. Quite remarkable. Uh, results you can't get with an antidepressant, so a very high effect size. Now these are just phase 2 trials, you know, we're talking about 80 volunteers and they need to be replicated on a much wider scale and that will happen fairly soon. So that's been one promising area of research and perhaps the most uh, advanced in terms of scale of the and rigor of the experiments. There's also been a pilot study of smoking cessation. You know, smoking is a very hard addiction to break and in 15 people of them were abstinent after a year, which is quite remarkable. I think the the standard of care for that, I think it's Shantex or something like that, is 20% after a year success rate. So that's pretty remarkable, but again, needs to be and is being repeated on a larger scale. There have been, uh, there was one study for obsessive compulsive disorder that showed encouraging results. Uh, Another pilot study in New Mexico for alcohol addiction that was encouraging enough in its results to lead to a very large phase two trial that's underway right now at uh, at NYU. So it's addiction, depression, anxiety, obsession. I think there's great potential for eating disorders. And I know the people at Hopkins are looking at that. It seems to do best in disorders that are characterized by kind of obsessive thinking, rigid thinking, people getting trapped in a narrative about themselves that is, you know, unhelpful. And that one of the most striking things to me is, is the drug, uh, the success of psilocybin, and, and by the way, I should point out that today, they use psilocybin almost exclusively and stay away from LSD for two reasons, even though LSD was used a lot in the, in the 50s and 60s. The effects are quite similar. The psilocybin trip is much shorter, though. It's only like five or six hours, as opposed to a potential 10 or 12 with LSD. And that's very hard to fit into the uh, therapeutic workday. <laughs> I mean, the, if the- if You can't get home for dinner. Yeah, they want to get home for dinner. And, uh, and then there is also the fact that LSD carries so much more cultural baggage and that you're much more likely to excite a reaction on the part of some uh, you know, congressman standing up and saying, why are we doing research with LSD? He can't, he can't get the same bang talking about psilocybin, which he might not be able to pronounce and, and, and his audience doesn't know what it is. So psilocybin can operate under the cultural radar a little bit, at least so far. So the indications that it works best, you realize, have something important in common, um, which is that the ego uh, or the self is kind of stuck in these stories, these narratives that are really unhelpful. You know, narratives like, I can't get through the next hour without a cigarette, or narratives like, "I'm, I'm worthless, or narratives that, you know, I'm about to die and what's the meaning of life? And, uh, you know, I'm confused. And so they kind of dope slap people out of their stories. And I think that's a very, I mean, it's it's kind of a new model for um, psychotherapy, right? Because you, you're really administering an experience, not just a chemical.
0: Yeah. Well, so you remark on this at some point in your book that it, it may, at first glance, seem surprising that a single antidote is being proffered for all of these diverse conditions, but When you boil it down, and I guess my experience in meditation would tempt me to boil it down even further, all of these conditions, as you say, have this common feature of the mind being imprisoned by certain patterns of thinking. And, you know, I would say that basically all of mental suffering has this feature that it's really significantly or entirely mediated by thinking and one's relationship to one's thoughts. And so, you're left with a few options. You can either change your thoughts or change the world so as to be convinced by it that a change in your thinking is warranted. You can change your relationships, you can change your career, you can change your health, you know, you can rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, or you can change your relationship to your thoughts. And there's something about a psychedelic experience that I would argue does both. Meditation is... And we'll talk about the differences here because I think, as you know, in the Venn diagram of remedies for existential problems, I think that meditation and psychedelics overlap significantly, but not entirely. Mm-hmm. Meditation is much more weighted on the side of changing your relationship to thoughts in a pure way without really changing content. And the thing about a psychedelic experience is the contents of consciousness change so radically that you can't help but be shoved into different patterns of thinking about yourself and your place in the world and what it is to be an ape confronted by the cosmos, it's not actually a surprise that these experiences change people's suffering with respect to many different conditions and probably many conditions that are not on anyone's list yet. I want to come back to a few things you mentioned here because in your book there are these fascinating anecdotes. Well, first you mentioned the application to treatment-resistant depression, I was astonished to hear from you that that idea actually came from the FDA. That was thrust upon researchers who were looking for a more, a more narrow application, and the FDA opened the door to that.
1: Yeah, um, that was fascinating. So when they, when the researchers from Hopkins at NYU brought the results of these Phase two trials to their meeting at the FDA— They were hoping to get approval to do a Phase three study of of the same thing, um, depression and anxiety in cancer patients. But it was the regulators at the FDA, and this reporting is based on what the researchers told me, the FDA wouldn't say a word about it because they don't disclose anything about drug approval processes, but that they said, you know, there's a strong signal here that this is effective uh, with depression, and we have a tremendous problem with depression and very few tools to treat it. Uh, The SSRIs, uh, antidepressants like Prozac uh, and Paxil, uh, you know, there are a lot of problems with them. There was recently a meta-analysis that showed they only do slightly better than placebo and that their effects fade over time and that they're very hard to get off, and people really hate the side effects very often. So the FDA was very open to studying depression in a larger population. In America, it's not, just to correct you, uh, it's not gonna be treatment-resistant depression, it's gonna be major depression. In Europe is where they're gonna do treatment-resistant depression. These are depressions that have failed to respond to two courses of treatment. And so that was, uh, as one researcher described it to me, he said it was a surreal moment. And, And one of the reasons they had worked, wanted to work with cancer patients is they thought it was a particularly sympathetic population that uh, we had very little for because antidepressants really don't help very much if you're, you know, facing uh, your mortality, if you have what they call psychospiritual distress. So, the, yeah, that was, um, uh, that was another indication, I think, that there is a receptivity to this work right now that really flows from the desperate straits uh, of the population and the limitations of mental health care right now. And, you know, Tom Insel, the, the former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, he was really the one who sensitized me to this. And he, he points out that if you compare mental health treatment, which, by the way, only reaches half the population of people who need access to it right now. If you compare it to any other branch of medicine, to oncology or cardiology or infectious disease, it's achieved very little. And there is a tremendous amount of sufferings out there. You know, the rates of depression are climbing. Suicide is going up alarmingly. And addiction is, is uh, rates of addiction are raising. And addictive behavior is, you know, rampant. So, uh, and big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, d- d- apparently has very few uh, what are called CNS drugs, central nervous system drugs in the pipeline. So I think even the FDA is a little desperate uh, when it comes to looking for... An, innovation in mental health treatment. And there really hasn't been much innovation since the early nineties. So I think psychedelics come along now at a at a very propitious moment.
0: Yeah, I wanna spend a couple of minutes on the end-of-life care and the cancer patient stories you tell, because there's one in the book that is fairly arresting and inspiring. And also I just had recent experience with this. Someone close to me in my family recently died of pancreatic cancer. And I was, you know, for the first time in many, many years, in the situation of being, you know, close to someone who was dying, and just being taken through every stage of the medicalization process of death, where treatment is no longer treatment, and you you go into a hospice situation, and you know, I was struck at every stage along the way that the promise of bringing equanimity to the person who's dying it's really not just about the person who's dying. The state of mind of the person who's dying affects everyone around him or her. And and to some degree, this is just luck of the draw. I mean, it's just, you know, you're you're lucky not to have dementia, you're lucky not to be in excruciating pain. And, you know, there are treatments for both of those things are, in the first case, basically non-existent, in the second, imperfect. But, you know, as it happened, my family member got very lucky, and he died in a state of just virtually unbroken gratitude and love, and it was just, he won the death lottery, essentially, and the effect.
1: Why? What happened?
0: He was not someone who was at all overcome by regret, or, I mean, he was just feeling gratitude and love for seemingly every conscious moment that was left to him, and the experience of being with him and mourning the loss of him was totally different than if he had been in some radically different state of, you know, being terrorized by the contents of his his own mind, which is the way many people die. And you tell a story in your book of a cancer patient who, you know, on the basis of, I think it was one psilocybin experience, was set on course to have a an extraordinarily beautiful process of dying, which affected everyone around him.
1: Yeah, you're talking about Patrick Metis, who is a, uh, a, was a journalist in New York, worked for MSNBC, it was about my age at the time, in his 50s, and he had bile duct cancer that had spread to his lungs. He was really paralyzed by anxiety and depression, and he read about the trial at NYU in the same article I first heard about it, actually, in the New York Times, and he immediately called them and uh, applied to get in. It's interesting, his wife, Lisa, was against it uh, and thought that this represented a surrender to death and that he had given up fighting. And that's a very common reaction. And, and indeed, most oncologists, uh, at least in that, when that study was going on, reacted the same way. They had a lot of trouble getting referrals because the oncologists see any acceptance of death as a, as a, as a defeat and, and they take it personally. As if it were their defeat. So, but he went ahead anyway, and he had a, a profound experience that involved um, a rebirth. He suddenly um, started shuddering and lifted his legs and 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 held on for dear life with one of his guides. And uh, and where he said and he said to them, "Life, uh, dying and being born is a lot of work." And he was being born, or he was giving birth and he was giving birth to himself he he felt after it had happened and there was a, a very rich kind of feminine principle at work michelle obama showed up in his his trip and his um his late uh, sister-in-law and he had an interesting experience with his mother who i think he had problems with i never really understood what those problems were but he he had a, an epiphany that you know a mother had to love Uh, her child. And so perhaps what he he had failed to understand as love was love. And then he had this interesting experience, and I'm cutting out lots of things. Derek Jeter showed up. Uh, He had this whole riff on aesthetics and why we need to simplify everything we do, uh, that we put too many notes in the songs, too many elements in the TV program, and that we needed to focus on love and that love was the most important principle. And I'll get back to that because the, the, the problem of platitudes on the psychedelic experience is interesting, if it is a problem. But, um, and then he had this experience of kind of climbing up to this precipice that was made of stainless steel, and it was kind of sharp, and looking out over it and seeing this, this plane of, of consciousness that was infused with love. And he saw that as a form of consciousness outside of himself. That would survive him, and he could go there now. He realized he could he could go over to that side, but chose not to. That he that he didn't want to leave his wife yet, and that he still had uh, some time that he wanted to spend in this world. When the trip ended, he was uh, sweaty, exhausted. His wife said he looked like he'd run a marathon, and he wrote a beautiful account of it that that his wife and his doctor allowed me to quote at length, and it's it's extraordinary. And um, he spent the next 17 months in a very different frame of mind. He, at one session, I had the, the therapeutic notes with his palliative care psychologist. He spent his days walking uh, around Brooklyn, uh, finding interesting places to have lunch, savoring every moment, like the family member you were describing. And in one session with his shrink, he said uh, "This is he'd never been so happy in his life as in those last months, because of the gratitude he had for the time he had left. And his focus turned from the quality of his time to the quantity. And in fact, he did stop chemo eventually, not because he wanted to die, he said, but because he didn't want to live that way while he was still alive. Toward the end, his lungs began to fail, and he went into the hospital at Mount Sinai. And Lisa, his wife, and Tony Bosis, his, uh, his therapist, said that his room in the palliative care unit at Mount Sinai became this gravitational field in the hospital. Everybody on the floor wanted to spend time in that room because he was putting out so much love. His wife said he, it was like he was a yogi. They all wanted to, be, they wanted to be near this presence. You know, here is someone facing death within a matter of days, yet is putting, putting out this energy that, you know, we, we normally turn away from the dying. You know, we, we, have to, we have to work very hard not to, but this was quite the opposite. You know, I never met him. Uh, Everything I know about him came from interviews and reading these notes. He had died before I I wrote about him. Um, But there's a moment where his his, uh, wife sent me a photograph that she'd taken four or five days before he died. And I remember vividly the moment I clicked it open on my computer screen. And here was this man. I had never seen a picture of him. He was emaciated. He was very, very thin. He had an oxygen clip and was wearing that blue hospital scrubs. And his shining blue eyes that he had, and he was beaming, absolutely beaming. And it was—it just took my breath away. Uh, and he died, um, you know, in a very deliberate way. He was ready, uh, and with uh, what appeared to everybody around him to be complete equanimity. But your point about the the, the caregivers and how important it is to them too because it's very hard to take care of someone who is who is suffering in that existential way, um, you know, l- let alone the pain and the, um, you know, all the physical problems of, of dying. And actually there are some, uh, some of the therapists who've done this work thinks that, you know, there's a place for giving it to the caregivers also and um, that it could help them. So what happened in the mind of uh, Patrick Metis is, is a question that I became intensely concerned with. I wanted to understand that. Um, Had he had a glimpse of an afterlife? Was that what it was? I don't think exactly. Uh, But he'd had a a glimpse of a kind of consciousness that was literally selfless. It was a consciousness that was outside of him that was universal in some ways and that he was part of and would continue to be part of even when when he died. Now you can argue if that's a form of immortality or not, but it it is a transcendence of the self, and I think part of what's going on here is people are they're rehearsing their death, you know, an ego death is a death, uh, and it can feel like a death, and it can be agonizing or ecstatic depending on your your preparation and your 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 set, your mindset, and that rehearsal, I think. And what you're rehearsing is letting go also. And that's very important because we we cling, you know, we cling to all sorts of things. And to let go of yourself and have that experience, I think, equips you to die.
0: Well, I want to talk about the experience and, and your experiences in particular and what they may or may not mean, kind of the metaphysics lurking at the back here. But I think we should deal with this problem of platitudes that you raised a moment ago. And this relates to the so-called and much-remarked ineffability of the psychedelic experience. It's not that it is, I mean, it, it can certainly be hard to remember. Many psychedelic states have somewhat the quality of dreams where, you know, they can be incredibly intense, but paradoxically very hard to remember even a few moments later. But I don't think they're as ineffable as all that. You do a good job of effing in this book. If anyone's heard <laughs> Terrence McKenna talk for 14 hours about any of his drug experiences, he's uh, he's quite articulate on all the details. So you can capture many of the features of interest here. The problem of platitude, and, and again, you remark on this at several points in the book, and it, it's something I'm sensitive to also as a writer. You hate to boil it all down to a sentence that belongs on a, a Hallmark card, I think as you put it. but i think there's a principle of charity you have to extend to the other person and even to your former self when you're trying to capture these experiences because a statement like love is the principle of being say right love is everything that ma- is the only thing that matters yes. right Th- that like if if you actually do the work to capture what that state of mind is it's worth doing yeah so i have a slightly different take on
1: the platitudes i like I think they're true. I think that a a platitude is a truth after you've drained out all the emotional content and you've defended against it with irony and um, cynicism. So I think in a way we are, you know, it's like most cliches are true at some level, right? And that these platitudes, let's say about the importance of love, it's really true, but it's so obvious and I, I say at some point in the book that psychedelics can make you a, a fervent evangelist of the obvious, but we, you know, we're so con- consumed with novelty that we, I think, we don't pay enough attention to the obvious, uh, and the obvious often contains wisdom. And I think that one of the things that happens on psychedelics it's it's the problem of ineff- ineffability that William James described about the mystical experience, but it's another issue he talked about too, which was this noetic quality. The idea that the, the truths that you're acquainted with or the insights you have are not mere opinions. They have the status of revealed truth. They're like tablets handed down from the gods, you know? And, and I think that's true with some of those platitudes. So, but as a writer, yeah, it's a problem to work with because you know most of our writing is, is, is fundamentally ironic somewhat detached we're you know we're we're it's very hard to be emotional on the page without you know seeming foolish and and we defend against strong emotion on the page as writers and one of the things i had to get over in writing this book which was a real departure for me at a literary level was like i'm not going to be afraid to be embarrassed i'm just going to put it all down i'll edit it later but i'm not going to be concerned with how i appear to others Uh, I'm going to try to be as honest to the experience as I could. And and so you did, I found myself saying like ridiculous things. And then the way I dealt with it was to kind of cultivate this double voice where I write about the experience on its own terms from within, accepting the terms of the experience. And then I pull back either parenthetically or, you know, in the next paragraph and say, look, I know how this sounds. I'm giving you a metaphor, even though it's not. I know it's not exactly right. So finding that voice was very difficult, but once I found it, I, I I thought it was. I don't know if you had this experience, but I thought it was really fun to write about these trips. And I actually thought the recall was better than dreams. I, you know, with dreams you have that sense of an undertow taking your dream and like yanking it back into your subconscious as soon as you wake up. Here, are some of the some of the episodes, some of the images were so concrete. They were really sturdy psychological facts that I could, I could describe and, and images I can conjure now with in, in incredible detail. And I've also found in a lot of the people that have been essentially confessing their psychedelic stories to me since I've, I've been out talking about this book, I'm amazed that what they remember from 30 or 40 years ago. these are, you know, these are for some people, they've, Profound transformative experiences that the culture hasn't allowed them to take seriously, and now now they they, they sense an opening, uh, and a receptivity, and and I think that's going to be really interesting uh, as this conversation progresses. I think we're going to learn that oh, you know many people's lives were were changed by these experiences and and and, and various breakthroughs culturally, technologically, artistically. Uh, may owe to these experiences. I mean, I collected a handful of those stories, but I know there are a lot more out there because it's, you know, there's a cultural uh, penalty for saying, you know, yeah, I got that breakthrough after I had an LSD trip. But many people did. I I recently read an interview with um, the physicist Carlo Rovelli. You know, he wrote that book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Yeah. And he, uh, in this interview, in this interview, he said, um, well, I actually got interested in physics when I was 15 after an LSD trip. And and this brings us into the metaphysical questions, I guess. But um, he said that I had an experience of time that was so um, different than my normal experience of time, a a present opening up and no past, present, and future, that when when it was over, I, I said, well, why am I so sure that everyday normal consciousness's take on time is accurate. Why, how do I know that LSD take on time isn't accurate? And he said that um, it made him open to the, the truly trippy ideas of modern physics, um, you know, that, that uh, space-time is curved and that particles can't be said to exist until they're observed, all these ideas, string theory. Suddenly he said, well, there, there may be a, a world uh, that's not the, that the world that presents itself to our senses as the real world may not be the only one or may not be an accurate representation. It's, it sounds very religious, right? But it's the same idea that other people have taken psychedelics and ended up thinking about God and hell and heaven. He took psychedelics and thought about string theory and, and uh, quantum mechanics so there, you know, there are a couple different beyonds out there, and uh, and depending on probably on your temperament, psychedelics will take you into one or the other.
0: Yeah, well, th- there are many ways to bracket one's scientific and metaphysical concerns here, and still do the experiences themselves and their promise justice. This one distinction you make, you point out that the conventional opposition is between so-called spiritual things and material things, but you think it's much better to think in terms of spiritual versus egotistical. And that is a very different opposition and one which puts it squarely in the theater of consciousness. Whatever the relationship between these experiences and the brain, whatever the the relationship between consciousness itself and the physical world, one thing these experiences attest to without any doubt is that consciousness is susceptible to certain kinds of changes in the presence of these compounds and that the mind is capable of having these experiences and the brain is capable of mediating these experiences. And there's nothing that LSD or psilocybin is getting your brain to do that your brain can't do. I mean, the brain is the instrument that's being played. So it's, as a matter of experience, the phenomenology is undeniable.
1: Yeah, and, and you know what? You can get your brain to do the same thing through other methods, as you've as you've written yeah. about. Um, meditation is one. Sensory deprivation is one. Chanting, prayer. I mean, it's very interesting. I think you're right. I mean, these experiences are not in the molecule. The molecule is, uh, you know, as Stan Groff said, an unspecific mental amplifier of processes that are in consciousness. But what you alluded to before was, for me, you know i I say it at some point that i i th- I thought of myself as kind of a spiritually under underdeveloped or even retarded person, and then I didn't think I'd had a spiritual experience and I was prone to think of spiritual experience as something supernatural and as a as a pretty staunch philosophical materialist you know i I really believe the laws of nature can can explain everything if not now eventually and um so And that was part of my resistance to spiritual experience. I thought you had to give up on that idea to have one. And for me, the real breakthrough came after an experience I had on my second guided trip, and this was on psilocybin, of ego dissolution, of complete, uh, I just saw my ego turn into a sheaf of little papers scattered to the wind, and yet I was still conscious. And I, had, and I was taking part in a, a very kind of disinterested, objective, unburdened, you know, I was fine with it. I, my ego had dissolved and I, I, I had no problem. It was like, that's the way it should be. And that consciousness, and I don't know what it was. I mean, I, I don't doubt, it felt like it was outside of me, me, but I don't doubt that it was something that I produced um, or my mind produced. Although many people, as you know, draw a different conclusion from their psychedelic experiences that consciousness is transpersonal, but, um, but it did teach me something powerful, which was that I don't have to identify with my ego all the time, and that my ego is, is, is a character, is an element, is a projection in my head, and uh, I don't always have to listen to it either, and that I got a kind of distance on it because I beheld it from this new perspective, and I know the eyes are sound confusing here because there are two of them, and we don't really have. I mean, this is in, this is where you get into ineffability. We don't have a first-person pronoun that can split quite like that. And that was liberating to me. I mean, for one thing, that experience gave me a, a little sample of what Patrick Metis had experienced. This sense of a consciousness that um was not perturbed by the dissolution or the death of the self, and that seemed so much more durable than that, so much more universal than that. So that was really interesting. In and that, in, in that sense, I achieved what I needed to, to understand Patrick Metis and the other volunteers I was talking to. But the other thing was a, a psychological uh, benefit, which was simply that, you know, I, I, I could stand back on the scene of my own self and look at it in this critical way, uh, in this objective way, and that um, I didn't have to listen to my ego all the time. Now, I could have gotten that with, you know, 10 or 20 years of psychotherapy, probably. I mean, that's one of the things you work on in psychotherapy is, is, is kind of gaining new perspective on, on your ego and other parts of yourself. But I got it in an afternoon. And that kind of perspectival shift, I think, is a really important part of uh, what people can gain from, from these experiences.
0: Yeah, I guess it's relevant here to talk about the different emphasis that you get from going through the door of meditation versus psychedelics, because Mm, we talk a lot about non-duality and egolessness in both contexts, but what's interesting about meditation, and this is where it becomes, I think, more effable because it's it's just less cluttered, the notion of the illusoriness of the self, the illusoriness of the ego, and, and the fact that you can have consciousness without it, is not tied to any specific changes in the contents of consciousness. There's consciousness and it, its contents. There's the fact that there's something that it's like to be you and, and you're aware of sights and sounds and sensations and moods and thoughts. And then there's what is in fact arising in that context. And as you know, taking LSD or psilocybin changes the contents radically and For much of the time, or even all of the time, you can still feel like a self in the midst of those pyrotechnics. You know, the theater of your experience has expanded vastly, or it's become more chaotic or more colorful, or it's changed, but you can still feel that you are the center in the midst of all of those changes. And conversely, in meditation or just in ordinary life, you can lose the sense of that there's a center, and yet the quality of experience, the contents of consciousness, may not have changed at all. And you can have what is described in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, ordinary mind, which is just, you can have an experience of non-duality that doesn't require any change, at least in that moment, in what is experienced. It can seem quite ordinary, and yet there's no self. There's no thinker of thoughts. There's no one in the middle. And the utility of The psychedelic experience isn't totally dependent on an insight into non duality. I think there's definitely something to be gained, even if the self is along for the ride the whole time or seems to be. But if your only departure from ordinary egocentricity comes by being strapped to the rocket of a psychedelic, then it's very easy to get the impression that vast changes in the contents of consciousness are required to have. I quote spiritual experience.
1: Yeah, and you can't sustain that day after day either. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons that the you know so many of the American Buddhists and, and and practitioners of mindfulness in other traditions, you know, many of them began with psychedelics, but then we're looking for a way to carry some of these modes of consciousness forward into their daily practice. And and, and at some point, they gave up the drugs and took up meditation. And and there's a real logic to that, I think. But I think in both cases, you're right about the differences in terms of the contents of consciousness, but the key similarity is this distancing effect, I think. This lack of ego investment mm. in uh, whatever the con- contents of consciousness are. And this sense that you're, to the extent also you're entering the present moment, the idea of a, of a self that's continuous over time starts seeming less, uh, less sturdy and, and less sure. And so both represent, I think, a kind of putting aside of the, of the ego. But yeah, there are lots of other differences. It's worth pointing out, though, that when they have imaged using fMRI f- f- the brains of people on psilocybin and people with uh, extensive meditation experience who've meditated inside the fMRI machine, their scans are very similar. And one important network, the default mode network, which is very involved in uh, operations having to do with creating this sense of self over time, are quieted, you know, go almost offline. And that that parallel, and that was discovered accidentally. There was a researcher at Yale who was imaging the brains of meditators, and there was a researcher in England who was imaging the brains of people on psilocybin, and they they were remarkably similar. So I, I think it's a really rich area to look at the similarities and differences. Phenomenologically, I think there are huge differences, but there are, are things in common. And it was interesting, after my experience of ego dissolution, when I went back for my integration session with my guide uh, and I told her what had happened, I said I, I, I had learned for the first time that I, I don't. there's another ground on which to stand besides the ego ground. And she said, well, that's really worth the price of admission, isn't it? And I said, it was, but here I was back a day later and my ego was back in uniform and on patrol doing its, up to its old tricks. And so what good was that momentary experience? And, and this speaks to the difference between a regular practice and psychedelics. And she said, well, having sampled that perspective, having had a taste of another way to be and another way to react to what happens in your life, you can cultivate that, and I asked her how, and she said meditate, and that you know in a daily practice you can. And I know we're not supposed to be striving in meditation, but um, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> um, that you can you know reach for that state of uh, disinterest or calm uh, ability to observe the contents of your thought, and uh, and and she's, that proved to be true. I I, I actually became. And I know I shouldn't use these value judgments, but a much better meditator than I was. I I had an easier time quieting my thoughts having had that experience. So I do think that there's, I can imagine, you know, inaugurating meditation practices
0: with psychedelics. Yeah, well, many of us have. You know, that's how you you get, that's your baptism. That was the only way I think I would have discovered that there was Mm. a there there with meditation. I think, you know... This was a very common experience in the 60s. I'm sure it's been, it's continued to be common, but there are those of us who are sufficiently egocentric and lumpen in our sensitivity to these things. But for being bowled over by some psychedelic, we just wouldn't be candidates for introspection. (laughs) I mean, I, I would imagine if I had been taught to meditate, you know, I just would have spent 10 minutes on it and thought, well, that's just, there's nothing in there. I'm just sitting here thinking and getting bored, and it would have been at the very least a long process of kind of rational argumentation that would have had to have convinced me that it was worth exploring despite all the restlessness and boredom, and this was Terrence McKenna's point. It was kind of his psychedelic trump card that he played again and again, which is that if you teach someone to meditate or to do yoga or have them go on pilgrimage to some holy mountain, nothing is guaranteed to happen. And yet, if he gives you, you know, five dried grams of magic mushrooms or DMT or some other potent psychedelic. <laughs> Something's going to happen. Well, whoever you are, a freight train of significance is going to be coming your way in a matter of moments. With one significant, except, you know, you know the Ram Dass story, right? About yeah, giving yes. it to his guru. Yes, I do know that well, yeah. Uh,
1: and his guru said, you know, what you, what are these psychedelics you're talking to me about? You know, what's the big deal? And he said he asked for uh for it and he's he wanted a as big a dose as Ramdas could give him and he took something like six hundred micrograms of LSD and claimed that nothing happened. Right. <laughs> I love that yeah. story, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's apocryphal.
0: Yeah, there there are many stories around Maharaji who was his guru and which are similarly uh extreme and yeah, having spent a lot of time in those scenes, or I, I Maharaji was before my time, but I knew Ram Dass and I've spent my time in the company of various Indian meditation masters. The level of confirmation bias and a disinclination to be skeptical <laughs> of, of the stories of that kind, you can cut it with a knife <laughs> in the air. So, I can imagine. But conversely, the most grandiose claims on the experiential side as opposed to the physics or the metaphysics, I think those are borne out by meditation and by psychedelics. You know, the ego is an illusion. There's just no question about it subjectively, if you look closely enough, and the experience maps on to neurology far better than this imagined self that has to be sitting somewhere unchanging in the center of the brain. I wanna come back to the default mode network for a moment because it actually unifies the psychedelic and meditation experience and the illusoriness of the self more than most people, I think, notice. Well, first, what we should remind people why it's called the default mode network. So, it, what happened is, in virtually every fMRI study ever conducted, they would find that these midline structures in the brain would reduce their activity when the subject was on task. So whatever task you gave someone, whether it's your recognizing words or visual images or following motor commands, whatever it is, there was this alteration between the heightened activity in these midline structures between trials and its diminishment when attention was going outward toward the task. Marcus Called it the default mode. And as you say, it's been, it also correlates positively with things like self representation and mind wandering and many other forms of cognition and memory that plausibly anchor our sense of self. But one further implication here is that when our attention is outward going on a task, we are continually undermining, if not entirely losing our sense of self. And the more I pay attention to what it's like to be me, I'm convinced that this is happening all the time to everyone. It's not like the self really exists and we have to take acid or meditate for years to get rid of it. It actually doesn't exist. And it only seems to exist retrospectively when we are thinking about it. Basically, it is what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. But when your attention is demanded, and you focus on something in the external world, I would argue that in those moments, people are losing their sense of self, and we even have a phrase that captures this. We talk about being lost in our work, for instance. When you concentrate on anything, there's this kind of canceling of your experience of looking over your own shoulder. You're just on the thing you're focused on, but then whenever we take stock of our situation retrospectively, the default mode kicks in again, and we seem to, it seems to be us here again in full possession of our ego, and we don't notice this fluctuation. And I would say that meditation is, in one respect, simply becoming increasingly sensitive to the fact that that fluctuation is always happening, and the sense of self is dropping out whenever attention is clearly landing on its object, whether it's a sight or a sound or a sensation.
1: Yeah, I think you're entirely right. We lose ourselves in a task and we regain ourselves when we're, you know, when we stop acting and, and, uh, and we're not always happy either. I mean, there's a wonderful paper that Dan Gilbert and a collaborator wrote called a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. When we don't have something to take us out of ourselves, we're often miserable. And, and that's, um, And you can argue, and some do, that uh, depression is the case of a hyperactive default mode network, where it's very hard to get out of it and absorb yourself in anything in the world. You're, 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 You're kind of walled off inside your default mode network, and that's where you spend altogether too much time. My guess is there are many ways to turn off the default mode network. I mean, a task is one, flow. You know, the whole idea of flow definitely turns it off. But my guess is that you can do it with breathing exercises, you could do it with sensory deprivation, and that if we start imaging the brains of people in these other activities, also chanting and prayer and listening to music of certain kinds, we will find that there are many technologies to, to tune it down, to downregulate it that, w- that could really be helpful to people. You know, drugs are just kind of the, um, psychedelics are kind of a shortcut. As you say, they, they make something happen with a high degree of reliability. Um, but these other methods
0: are um, probably doing the same thing. Yeah, wait, well, so let's talk about uh, what was on the menu of your journey of discovery here. You took LSD, psilocybin, 5-MeO-DMT, and ayahuasca. Yeah, so there were the
1: four different yep. substances. Um, the, most, the, 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 the most, for me, my, my terrible trip, which unlike yours only lasted 20 minutes, was on 5-MeO-DMT the, in, in its natural form, which is the smoked venom of the Sonoran desert toad. I'm still in astonishment that any human being figured out that you should that's what you should do with that with that toad venom
0: after I, you've milked it. Oh, it's amazing. Um
1: and that's where I really ran into the ineffability problem, uh, in in the most profound way, because not only did my ego disappear, so this is you take one puff of this, right? And before you exhale, you have been shot out into outer space. And without any markers. uh, There's no, you know, there's no kind of arc to it. It's just, boom, you're there. And you, um, and not only is your sense of self obliterated, but the sense of time is obliterated and the sense of space is obliterated. You know, it's very hard to construct a story or a narrative without those three elements. You know, you need place, you need time, you need a character. (laughs) And I had none of that. And, uh, it was truly terrifying. It was this, uh, category five mental storm in my head, but it wasn't in my head because there was no barrier between what was going on in my brain and the entire universe. And, uh, you know, when I filled out the mystical experience questionnaire that all the researchers use, it should have been a good thing. I had merged with the universe, but it was a horrible thing. And, uh, I thought I was dying and, you know, and, uh, I just, and I tried very hard to surrender to it, to follow all the instructions my guides had given me, but nothing worked. I, those those instructions were like a scrap of paper in a tornado. When it So it was very hard to describe. And And the way I dealt with it as a literary matter was tell my reader, just turn to the reader and explain the problem and say, look, I'm going to give you two metaphors. And this is as close as I can get. And one was being in the midst of a thermonuclear blast and, you know, like one of those houses that they would erect on Bikini Atoll before they blew them up in the early nuclear tests. And the other was to go back before the Big Bang. You remember what that was like? Well, no, actually, we don't. But, but we knew there was no matter and there was no time. And, uh, it was a, and I always said it was, it was a little like that. And that's as close as I could get and um, to be any more neat about it would have been to do violence to the experience, uh, which did violence to me. But the best thing about it was you come down rather quickly, at least I did. It was kind of this suborbital flight. I never got into the orbit where it was supposed to be interesting and blissful, unfortunately. And, and all of a sudden, I could touch my thighs, and I had a body, and I could touch the floor, and there, there was a floor, and there was space, and there was time. And I had the most profound feeling of gratitude I have ever had. You know, many of us express gratitude for being alive, but I was feeling gratitude for the very fact of the existence of anything, that there was something rather than nothing. And that suddenly became so important and, uh, and worth you know, <laughs> worth being thankful for. So that was the positive. It's, it's, it was the kind of bliss that follows the surcease of, terrible pain, but, but I did learn something, uh, from the experience and, um, uh, but I will never do that one again.
0: I'm w- wondering why you chose to do five MEO DMT rather than DMT. Was it just a matter of opportunity or?
1: Yeah, it was available to me. And, uh, and I just took advantage of the opportunity. This, this woman was up from Mexico where she catches the frogs and milks them. And, and I was also very interested in the fact that it was a product of an animal. Um, you know, I had had a plant drug, I'd had a, a, a drug from a fungus, and I'd had a drug from a, from an amphibian. And you know, my original entree into this work is as someone who has, whose who's meta subject as a as a writer is our engagement with the natural world, all the interesting things we use other species for, and they in turn use us for. And I've always been interested in, you know, why is it that our species and this is true of uh, almost every culture on earth, uses some plant drug to change consciousness? Why is that an abiding and apparently universal human desire? It seems kind of maladaptive, except for, you know, helping us with pain. And so that's that's kind of the baseline question that got me into this, and not that I have any firm answers, but but I do think that that um, these radical changes in consciousness do have the potential to contribute variation to cultural evolution. I don't believe they've affected natural evolution the way Terence McKenna does. I, I, I don't know how you get to the genome with his theory uh, of the stoned ape. But, but without doubt, they, they, they lead to new memes, they lead to new ways of thinking about things that then enter the cultural uh, stream of evolution. And, um, and they may be a way that you know our species deals with crisis. You know, there's a lot we don't know about them. Obviously, there's this whole discussion, which is a little sketchy. I mean, you may know more about it than I do, about, you know, the fact that that the brain may produce its own psychedelic compound, DMT, and that it's been found in the pineal gland of of some animals. I don't know that it's ever been found in humans, and that that may, under crisis situations or near-death experience, be released, or perhaps during dreaming. I don't know. Um, uh, and, and the evidence seems a little sketchy.
0: Yeah, I know. I've, I've Is that something you've looked at? I actually haven't looked at it. I know some of the DMT research. I read Rick Strassman's book when it came out. So I know a bit about what's thought of DMT. But as you say, it's an endogenous neurotransmitter. And the fact that it is already in our heads is some indication, perhaps, of why DMT trips are so short, because the brain metabolizes it so readily. I mean, the, the Amazing thing about DMT, apparently, I've never actually taken DMT, so this is third-hand but well-attested information, that it's the most intense, often billed as the most intense psychedelic experience, but also the shortest. The full tour is like 15 minutes, and I think 5-MeO has a similar pharmacology. I don't know if it's been found in people. I mean, you got to think it's conserved from rodents to people if it's found in rodents, but I don't know who's been thinking about it of late. But yeah, I I know this meme that it could account for some of our altered states of consciousness. I think that consciousness itself, shorn of ordinary concepts, is already so altered that we don't need the secretion of a bespoke neurotransmitter to account for it. And this actually connects with some of the I guess, our concern about the platitudinous nature of some of this. I mean, if you look at anything, you know, your hand or, a, you know, a bottle on your desk or your keyboard, whatever's in view now, a tree, and you ask yourself, what is it? And you, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you actually, you can be, become sensitive to the fact that you don't know what anything is. You have words, you have a this experience of tiling over the contents of consciousness with concepts. But if you look as though for the first time at anything, though you have all of these words you can marshal about it, you actually don't know what anything is. Anything you can notice in consciousness advertises the mystery of being as well as anything else does. I mean, it's like it's all equivalent. Your hand is as mysterious as a unicorn if it would suddenly appear in a meadow in front of you. I mean there's just there is nothing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there is a kind of irreducible mysteriousness to everything, and on some level, this accounts for what is so paradoxical about our efforts to make sense of and kind of dignify the psychedelic experience with all the meaning that seems to come flooding in when we're having it because. This is something that uh, is kind of a deflationary account of one of my own experiences that I've told somewhere. But I remember it was one of my last acid trips I, I took in the living room of a friend's house, and had spent much of it looking at various photos. She had, you know, photos of you know great saints and sages you know, on a desktop. You know, like people like Ramana Maharshi and Ananda Maima, And you know, if you've ever gazed into the eyes of a saintly person on acid you know that there are intense experiences awaiting you there but at one point i'm looking into the eyes of some person and having the beatific vision and then i come down enough to recognize who i'm looking at and i'm staring at the cover of a tv guide and the fact that there was a physical tv guide in the room should suggest to you how long ago this trip was taken yeah <laughs> and i'm looking into the eyes of a particularly maniacal Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> and like that, what that had been, I don't know how long I'd been staring at Dick Van Dyke, but presumably it was a good long while because it felt like several ages of the earth. So in retrospect, you can go one of two ways with that. You can say, well, that completely trivializes the experience. You were, you know, a drug-addled moron who thought Dick Van Dyke was God. Or anything can become sufficiently worthy of your attention in certain states of consciousness, that you can have the beatific vision in anything. It's a quality of the attention. It's not a quality of the object. But, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the third possibility, of
1: course, is that Dick Van Dyke was God. Yes, you, ha- you have to you know, add that yeah. to the list. But um, there is something very uh, meaning-making about the psychedelic experience. Um, you're suggesting we don't need to make meaning, but somebody asked me today, why don't people have these profound experiences of the utter meaninglessness of existence on psychedelics? Why do they? Why are they much more likely to come back with a sense of meaning, significance, you know, the sacred quality, or the, or even just the significance quality? And that's a, That's a curious thing. There've been some there've been some cool experiments that have uh, looked at uh, how LSD changes what you think of uh, a given song. And, you know, we, we all have songs, usually ones we listen to a lot between like 17 and 22 that are particularly meaningful to us. There's some kind of window where meaning attaches to songs more than it does normally. And they found if they played a, a song that you had no attachment to at all while you were on LSD, you would create that attachment and it would, and it would, it would resonate with meaning in a way that it never had before and it would continue to for a long time. And so there was this, you know, speculation about this, that serotonin and these receptors are somehow involved in the uh, attaching a meaning to things that might be meaningless. But I I, I think the more likely possibility is what you're describing and that there is, you know, our brains are tuned for novelty, right? And 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 the things that are familiar, we know, like our hand works, we know where it is, we can find it, we can make it do things. And so we're not tuned to pay attention to it and one of the things certain drugs do and we know this is true of cannabis i don't know that it's been tested on psychedelics is that they change the balance between the novelty registering parts of our brain and the obvious or the the given you know the non-novel parts of our brain and suddenly the um the ordinary becomes gets a lot more uh, attention on marijuana and we all know that experience on marijuana of this you know this uh, cookie is just so profoundly amazing, you know, uh, this this cookie you've had a hundred times in your life, or a thousand times in your life, suddenly is the platonic cookie, and and that's a it's a curious thing. But I, I I do think the takeaway is yes, that attention properly applied to anything will reveal marvels, and that one of the things that these drugs do for us is restore a sense of wonder um, that gets attenuated. And, and, you know, because of predictive coding between, you know, basically, you know, our brains are tuned for survival, obviously, and uh, not dwelling on the obvious, <laughs> you know, that, that we have our algorithms to deal with the routine. And we put a lot of our mental I- energy into dealing with novelty. And, um, and but the wonders of, of life aren't necessarily novelties. They're, they're the familiar. Mm. And, and that's, and I think that's a really valuable lesson. Uh, that that gets reinforced by some of these substances.
0: Yeah, well, Michael, uh, though time may be an illusion, I realize ours is running short. You're in the middle of a <laughs> a punishing book tour, and uh, you've been very generous with your time. So I, just in the last minute here, first of all, I just want to flag for our listeners that there is uh, much more in your book that we haven't talked about. One thing you do in your book is give a history of the discovery and use and prohibition of psychedelics, which is fascinating. And it actually surprised me. There were things I, I thought I knew about the role that Tim Leary played and decisively, both at the beginning and the end, that I was wrong about. It's a fascinating and colorful story with some great characters in it. So we haven't touched on that at all. Before I let you go, I want to ask you how you think about the best case scenario here. I mean, how would you want to see? psychedelics integrated into our culture?
1: That's a great question, um, and I'm not sure I, I have the answer worked out. I, I do think that if the research unfolds on the, on the current course and we get to phase three trials using uh, psilocybin to treat these various indications, that it, it, the FDA will approve it as a drug, the DEA will reschedule it to schedule two or three, and it will enter um, mental health care. And that could happen in, you know, five years or so. It may not be that far away. The, the harder question is, how do you integrate it into everyday life for, um, as we discussed earlier, the betterment of well people? There are many people who don't suffer from depression or anxiety or, or, or mild cases of it who stand to benefit from these experiences. I'm not sure that straight out legalization is a good idea. I think that the lesson that we learn from all the traditional cultures that have used psychedelic substances is that they always regulate their use very carefully. There is usually uh, a ceremony, there are elders involved, there is a, uh, it's only done on special occasions, it's not done casually. You know, even the Greeks with the mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, Everybody took the kikion, which was their name for what was apparently a psychedelic substance, only once a year, and if you used it outside of that context, you, you would be punished, it was illegal. And so I think that's an important lesson. These cultures who have many more years' experience with them than we do, didn't use them casually. But you can imagine. I mean, look, lots of people receive benefit from you know going to psychotherapists who aren't who don't have mental illness per se, right? I mean, they're unhappy, they have problems, they're neurotic, and they get their drugs from their psychiatrist or therapy from their psychologist. And it seems to me those people too, perhaps, could be treated to a, a guided psychedelic session. And you know, there's a uh, the virtue of legalization is always of drugs. Is always that you can then regulate it. In other words, you can have your rules of who can, you know, how old someone has to be, where it can be done, the quality of the drugs themselves. When you have prohibition, there's no regulation, ironically, and uh, it's a free for all. And you have drugs that are cut with other drugs and uh, they get into hands of people perhaps too young to use them. So, it's a, it's, a, it's a real issue. I, I, you know, the shamanistic paradigm is not our paradigm. That's, a, that's not going to feel comfortable to us. Although there are certainly elements of shamanism in, in you know, modern medicine, the white coat phenomenon. But I think that's, an, that's a really interesting cultural project that awaits us. How do we come up with the ceremonies, the rituals, the protocols to make use of these powerful medicines in a way that's appropriate to us now? And uh, I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's a really interesting challenge. Medicalizing it will happen. They'll figure out how to do that. Uh, but this other area is going to take some uh, ingenuity. I'm open to lots of ideas, but uh, it's, I think it's really important we find that cultural container. I think it will make all the difference. It will mitigate the risks and offer the benefits to as, as many people as possible.
0: Mm, I couldn't agree more. And With that, Michael, I just want to wish you well on the rest of your book tour and flog this book with a clear conscience because it's fantastic (laughs) and the world needs to read it. Thank you, Sam. Well, it's a great, it was a privilege talking to you about it
1: and I look forward to continuing the conversation in, in other venues.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advance tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.